gonna dance. Oh, you gonna dance. Like, all right, all right, stop all right. it. That gets my groove back. Hey y'all, welcome to Cross Politic. It is the midweek fix. We're here. It's yeah. Wednesday. I, I think every day's it's midweek every fix every now. Day's Thank you for joining fix. us on the Fight Laugh Feast Network. If you haven't joined the club yet, what's wrong with you? Join the club. Get a free Fight Laugh Feast T-shirt. And if you want to be in a conversation with us, make sure you email us at contact at crosspollfightlefties.com uh, and share the show now. That's what I'm doing. I'm sharing it okay, right now. Share it now. I just want you to keep playing that music. Oh, I this one? Dude, that was, I just keep, I, we that can was do that. jamming. Hey, with us on the line right now, he's got his own intro music, Alex Epstein <laughs> founded the Center for Industrial Progress, CIP, in 2011 to offer a positive pro-human alternative to the green movement. Ooh. Epstein is the author of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, sitting right here on my desk. Mm. He's looking at it. Is New that York, a signed copy? New York Times best, uh, uh, not yet. Oh, okay. New York Times bestselling, uh, bestseller arguing that if we look at the whole picture, human flourishing requires that humanity use more fossil fuels, not less. So go out to the parking lot and start your car right now. Oh, wow. Um, Wall Street Journal review um, uh, reviewed it. Book one, Epstein, the most original thinker of 2014 award uh, from the McLaughlin Group. Um, Epstein has publicly debated leading environmentalist organizations mm. such as Greenpeace, the Sierra Club, and the 350.org, as well as spoken on dozens of college campuses, including Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Duke, which is his own. They let him in? They, I know, that's amazing. Wow. Um, he's also spoken to uh, many employees and leaders at dozens of Fortune 500 energy companies, including ExxonMobil, Chevron, Phillips 66, Valero, Enbridge, TransCanada, and Cross Politics Studios. I saw my Google. Too. Hey, Alex, thanks for joining us on Cross Politic. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, maybe one of the ways of describing the thesis of your book is that the world owes the fossil fuel industry an enormous apology. <laughs> um, why, why would you say such a thing? Well, I mean, why would you apologize for something? I mean, one reason is that you would apologize to someone. One reason is. You know, they did something bad and you falsely accuse them. Uh, I mean, rather, they didn't do something bad and you falsely accuse them. The other thing is they did something good and you didn't recognize it. Mm -hmm. And I think both of those are fundamentally true in the case of the fossil fuel industry. What the fossil fuel industry has done, they've done something nobody else in history has ever figured out how to do to this day, which is how to produce reliable energy at low cost for billions of people. Mm -hmm. Nobody has ever figured out how to do that. Nobody had uh, figured out how to do it 200 years ago, 100 years ago. And even today, if you look at all the different forms of energy that we need to live and to, to live to our highest potential to flourish. So for transportation, electricity, industrial heat, home heat, for all those forms of energy, there's only one approach that we know of that can make energy reliable, low cost for billions of people. And that's what the fossil fuel industry has done. And so what that's done is that's empowered the world. It's given us an incredible ability to use machines to improve our lives. And all of wow. our lives have yeah. improved enormously with machines. And yet we condemn the only people who figured out how to make the miracle of machine power mm. available to billions. Wow. But, but, but here's, here's where you're wrong because it's actually killing us. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the argument that they're coming up with is is that fossil fuel is actually going to kill us in the long long run. Yeah, and so it's it's interesting. One thing I I have done in my work and I talk about in the first chapter of the book is I like to look at the track record of claims. So when people are telling me, "Hey, the world is going to end because of X activity," I want to look at 
their track record and see, well, what have they said in the past? And right. so one of the interesting things about people claiming catastrophe from fossil fuels is that for the last 50 years, people have been claiming that fossil fuels are going to bring us toward some kind of catastrophe. So first it was, we're going to run out of them. Then it's going to cause so much pollution, we're all going to choke. Then it's it's going to cause so much pollution, there's global cooling. Yep. And then not just global warming, but catastrophic global warming to the point where literally over a billion people die. <laughs> and none of these claims has materialized. And in fact, life has kept getting better and better as more people become more and more empowered. So, okay, well, just wait 12 years as far as when I stand for AOC. Yeah, AOC says 12, 12 years. years it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> Could you help me understand? Because I'm hearing you, but I also hear that stuff like fracking, just give it a second, fracking is going to destroy us. I don't even understand what the heck fracking is. <laughs> Could you help me understand what fracking is and why it's deemed to be so bad? Sure. So fracking is a process that's part of what you can call the oil production process. So there's, and it also applies to natural gas. So there's oil and gas underground. We need to drill for it to get it out. Just like basically we need to go underground to get every material in our civilization, including the materials in solar panels and wind turbines. Mm. So in the broadest in the broadest sense, you have to mine everything. Drilling, you can think of as a form of mining. And mm. so what fracking is, it stands for, it's shorthand for hydraulic fracturing, which is a process for fracturing rocks using water, which allows oil and gas to escape. So it's an incredibly ingenious process. Mm. And there's really nothing about it that's fundamentally different from regular drilling in terms of a safety or health perspective. But it's demonized because it's new. And one thing we're noticing, I mean, this is interesting, even if we talk about the new coronavirus, is it's very easy to demonize things or and particularly to call for, for radical restrictions on freedom when you're dealing with something that seems new. So I don't mm. want to jump too quickly to the coronavirus, but I think that if the, I think coronavirus is worse than the flu, but I think that if the flu came out today with the exact same profile, I think the country would panic in the exact same way. Ooh, yeah. But because we've had it, for a hundred years, it's like, oh, it's normal that you know fifty thousand people a year die from the flu. So it's really interesting how catastrophe predictions, as well as radical restrictions on freedom, happen with things that are regarded as new. I I thought that I would I want to jump into that, but maybe as a, as another segue towards it later in the book, you unpack four fallacies that commonly occur in climate alarmist rhetoric. Yeah. Could you walk us through those? Because I think they apply to a number of, they have a number of different applications. Yeah, so I'll just make sure I, I remember all of them. But so <laughs> one, and it applies to, I, I mentioned in the book, I think it's in chapter seven, I'm talking about particularly, I, I use examples of fracking. But so one is what I call the use abuse fallacy. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the idea or sometimes they call it the abuse use fallacy. And basically what that says is somebody points out a way in which we abuse a technology. So they'll say, oh, someone used fracking in this way and it contaminated groundwater. And they say, therefore, we have no right to use it. But you could say that about anything, right? Any technology can be abused. Right. That doesn't mean it shouldn't be used. So that's mm -hmm. a very common thing. Uh, another fallacy is the um, I forget what I call it in the book, but it's it's basically the natural fallacy, mm -hmm. which is the idea that if things are natural, they're considered good, and th if they're unnatural, they're considered bad. So people will say something like, with, with nuclear energy, they'll say, oh, it's unnatural mm. to split the atom. Right. Even though the way we split the atom for nuclear energy is very, very safe, people assume, oh, if it's natural, it's safe, and if it's unnatural, it's dangerous, whereas there are many, many natural things 
that are incredibly dangerous. And in fact, natural life is incredibly dangerous. It doesn't give us clean water, doesn't give us sanitation, gives us a lot of climate danger that we have no means of handling without advanced technology and, and industry. So those are um, a couple of them. I don't know if, if uh, there the are no any thresh- others. That- yeah, the no threshold fallacy. Oh, the no threshold one. Yeah. So that's that's a very important one. And that also uh, just applied to nuclear energy. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, think no threshold basically means if something is dangerous at some level, then it's dangerous at any level. Mm, and this is okay. a terrible idea. So if you took sunlight, you could say, oh, sunlight at a certain level is really bad for you. It right. could cause skin cancer. Right. Therefore, we shouldn't have sunlight at any level. And what sunlight is, it's actually an example of what's called a, this is a little technical, but a hormetic response. So it's something where the dosage of it, if it's too high, it's bad. At a certain level, it's kind of benign, but there's actually such a thing as having too little of it. So you want a certain uh, amount of it. And so some, usually what happens is either things are good at some doses and bad at some doses and neutral at some doses, or at least they're neutral at some doses and bad at, at some doses. So when you're talking about things like pollution and emissions, you want to find the level at which things are neutral or even beneficial. You don't want to just assume that they're fatal at any level because then what you do is you end up stopping all of life in the name of stopping all emissions. And then you, and then the last one is false attribution. Yeah, so f- false attribution is basically you, you assign, you attribute a certain effect uh, to the wrong cause. So if you take fracking, mm-hmm. what you find happened a lot is people said, oh my gosh, there's natural gas in my groundwater. Yeah. That must be the fault of fracking. And yet natural gas is very, very commonly occurs in groundwater. Something like 20% of groundwater is generally considered contaminated yeah. by the U.S. government, the U.S. Geological Survey. So it's very, very common for people to take a problem in the world and to assume that industry caused it. You certainly see this now with climate, what they call climate change. So they'll say, well, rising CO2 levels, anything that goes wrong, basically anytime there's weather I don't like, (laughs) it's the fault of rising CO2 levels. And then anytime there's weather I do like, somehow nature gets all the credit. So go (laughs) figure that one out. Yeah, so that that brings me to the question um, of the CO2 levels. That's kind of a a no threshold and fault attribution fallacy that's going on here. But uh, the CO2 levels are higher uh, than ever. Um, How is that? No, they aren't. Than ever. I mean, no, I mean, they're much lower. And this is part of, but it's true that they're rising. So they're rising in the, you know, the you know, human time span, certainly the last several hundred years and even beyond that. Yeah. So if you look at, say, in the last 170 years, they've risen from slightly under 0.03% of the atmosphere to a little over 0.04% of the atmosphere. So we do have rising CO2 levels, but the it, what you raise is important. The question with threshold, the question is, what's the threshold of danger? So mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that because it rises that it's necessarily worse, and it certainly doesn't mean that it's catastrophic. And, and one reason I protested against the idea that it's higher than it's ever been is part of what, how we can determine the safe threshold is to look at the history of the planet. And so if we have periods in the planet's history where the levels were 15 times higher than they are today, mm-hmm. and temperatures were in fact 25 degrees Fahrenheit warmer, and this was true for many of them, the most flourishing periods of life on the planet, If that's true, then we have every reason to think that increasing it a little bit is not going to hurt much, and it might even help in terms of warmth and plant growth. But it's it's crazy to think, oh, the Earth won't function 
if we go from, you know, one fifteenth of the historical high, even to one fifth of the historical high. And we have no idea how to get to the historical high, even if we wanted to. Yeah. So let me push that a little further. Um, A lot Mm -hmm. of the scare charts that you see out there um, have the CO2, um, atmospheric CO2 level graph. Uh, and, and mm-hmm. you see basically kind of a hockey stick of of the CO2, atmospheric CO2 levels going up since, uh, really since 1900s, but but even more, the, the hockey stick gets more sharp as it goes up. Yeah, the blade. Yep, that's right. Uh, how do you respond to that? Earlier you were talking about how CO2 levels 0.03, 0.04, but then this chart is obviously me- measuring something differently than the way you're talking about it. Well, no, it can still be, I mean, it, it can still be measuring CO2 levels because okay. if you just had the bottom of the graph at 0.03% of the atmosphere and then you'll see it going 0.03 and then it starts to to go up yep. uh, like that. So it, now it also could be talking about temperature, which they would have to be really distorting things a lot more to look at it that way. But the interesting thing, which I have a graph of this, I think it's in chapter three of the book. I use it a lot in my presentations now. So if people look up like Alex Epstein, Google, you can see on YouTube. Okay. What's really interesting is that the hockey stick that's interesting is not so much rising CO2 levels by itself, but it's that rising CO2 levels correlate very strongly with hockey sticks of, if you look at life expectancy, so life expectancy was flat and yeah. then it jumps up. And uh, income level, so how many resources we have. It's flat, then it jumps up. Yeah. And number of people the planet has, flat, and then jumps up. So yeah. you I haven't seen that income jump in my life, all right? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you, if you look at the average person around the world, uh, <laughs> yeah. and that, that's part of the story that's not being told wow. is how much. Now, I think there are reasons right. why we would want wh- how, what we could do differently in the U.S. Yeah. to have even more of an income jump. But the story around the world is just incredible in terms of poverty. Just one quick stat is that when I was born in 1980, 42% of the world lived on less than $2 a day. Now it's less than 10%, you know, wow. less than 40 years wow. later. So wow. Life has been becoming so much better. So what people should really be looking at is why is life beco- why is this planet becoming so much of a better place to live and why does that correlate so strongly with rising co2 levels and if they thought about that they'd realize oh it means the co2 levels are probably not catastrophic but the real thing it means is that the energy that came with the rising co2 levels that that's empowered billions of people to be far more productive mm. and therefore they could live mm. longer and healthier and happier lives so early in the book, you analyze wind and solar power, and you call them parasites that require a host. Oh, oh ouch! Isn't that just gentle, in- insensitive, and mean? I-, I really like how familiar you guys are with the book. <laughs> you don't get this uh, this uh, level of familiarity. So, uh, that make you uh, nervous? Exact- no, no, it's much better than, than people being asking questions that make clear they haven't even opened the cover of the book. Uh, yeah, so the key the, the key thing with uh, I I wouldn't take back that statement at all. I think the idea of a parasite that requires a host is is very important. And you could think of it as if you're talking about replacing fossils, and that's what people are saying that solar and wind can do. Then you need something that would be self sufficient that could produce. Remember what I said: reliable energy at low cost uh, for billions of people. And what you find with solar and wind is they can't even produce reliable energy at low cost for even 100,000 people, even if you're just talking about electricity, which is their specialty, let alone things like transportation right. and industrial heat and home heat, which they're not very good at at all. 
uh, on any scale. And, and a key to that is that they're the input. So the sun and the wind, those are fundamentally unreliable or what's often called intermittent. And so that means you, if you need reliable energy, which we do for most things, then what you need is you need a process for transforming an unreliable input into a reliable output. And that's why the cost of these things is so high because either you need to, to somehow make enough batteries, which we only do even using fossil fuels anyway, but you need to somehow make enough batteries to just have a huge backup system. And this is so expensive that this doesn't exist and isn't even planned anywhere on earth in terms of a self-sufficient solar wind battery system. So usually what you do is you just attach it to a fossil fuel and or nuclear system. And so that's why I say it's a parasite <laughs> yeah, yeah. that requires a wow. host. So oh. when people say, oh, I get my energy from the sun, it's really, no, it's not, there's no solar, there's just solar coal or solar gas or solar nuclear. Wow. Oh, wow. So the whole electric car movement is just like a sham. You're, that's still fossil fuels. Well, it depends what you mean by it's, it's a sham. I mean, there, there are reasons to want battery-powered vehicles of different kinds if they're actually cost-effective. Uh, the thing with, with battery cars or what, what are often called electric cars is I think for some people they make sense, but you notice they are much more expensive yeah. uh, than regular automobiles. And so most people can't afford them and they have issues with range. So they don't have the same convenience. So a lot of people will buy a Tesla as their second or third car. Uh. But as indicated, it's a sham in so far as the idea that they're getting us off fossil fuels. Right. I, I wrote a, a Forbes article years ago, which was talking about the Tesla Model S is a great fossil fueled car. And, <laughs> and I do think that, and that might be why Elon Musk blocked me on Twitter. But <laughs> it's a great, it's, if you think it's a solar car, if you think somehow the factories that make it, the mining that was done, even the electricity that's yeah. powering it, if you think that's just coming from solar, then you are being uh, manipulated. Yeah, that's you, right. You tell a story somewhere in the book about this toxic lake in China. And, mm -hmm. and, and I think you tell this story on college campuses and they say, that ought to be illegal. That ought to be illegal. And, right. then, and then you tell them it came from what? Well, it's, you know, it can be from wind or from solar or from, from batteries. And one way to, one thing to connect this to is that it's really important point that I stress a lot in the book that always think of energy as a process. So if you're thinking about energy, don't, don't just think, oh, it just comes out of the wall. Think about what's the whole process that was involved in making it. Right. And that will make you both aware of the different costs of the process, like the costs of turning an unreliable input to a reliable output. But it'll also make you aware of certain kinds of potentially negative environmental impacts. And so when people look at solar, they just think about the solar panel while it's operating. They don't think about how do you dispose of it. And they certainly yep. don't think of how you made it. And so there are these massive mining operations that go into it which is not at all to say it should be illegal, but certainly those need certain laws associated. And people should be really aware if they're, they have these solar panels and batteries and you know so they involve cobalt from kids in Congo. You really need to be aware. And in fact, one source of awareness on this, which is a very mixed bag, is Michael Moore. He just came out with a new documentary called Planet of the Humans. Hmm. And it's really attacking green energy for all its environmental impacts. But as far as I can tell, I haven't watched it yet, but I've read synopses. His message is basically we shouldn't be using any energy and we need to dehumanize the planet. Wow. So that's not How did he make his movie I, again? I don't, yeah, exactly. I don't think we should be using Michael Moore. <laughs> so as I was reviewing your book last night, Alex, I'm you're demolishing the data models of the climate change alarmists. And I can't help but keep saying to myself, the same thing is happening with COVID-19. Yeah. Um, and then I checked your Twitter feed and I was somewhat reassured. So 
How have you been processing this coronavirus panic? You know, is the same thing happening basically that has happened to us with climate change alarmists? Well, I think there's with the CO2 issue. So I do believe CO2 has an, a warming influence on climate, but I don't think it's all at all established even that that's net negative. Right. Whereas this coronavirus is absolutely net negative. I wish <laughs> yeah. that it did not exist. Yeah, yeah. There are real reasons to be, I mean, to be very concerned. People are dying. So it's it's a bad thing. And I wish we could have done a lot of things uh, differently. And I wish China had done a lot of things right. differently. But what it does have in common is there's this, this, this pattern that I've observed over and over in my career studying catastrophe claims, which is they say, if you leave people free, then it's going to cause a catastrophe. So we need to radically restrict freedom. And one thing they do is even when there's a legitimate issue, so say with fossil fuels, like legitimate issues about air pollution, they would say in the 70s, oh, it's going to block out the sun. We won't be able to grow plants. It's just right. this complete exaggeration and, and, you know, beyond wild speculation. And then they treat that as fact. And the media uh, often do this, even reputable knowledge sources. And what, so what they'll do is they'll take the specialists or the scientists with the most extreme views, and then they'll blend it all together. So you have this perfect storm apocalypse view. And then they'll say the only way to avoid this is for the government to control everybody versus what you should do in something like COVID is say, okay, what evidence do we really have? And the main focus should be, let's communicate that to people so they can make intelligent decisions. And then I think the, in, in terms of a free society, the real role of a government in something like this is the government's role is to basically prosecute people who are violating other people's rights. So the government needs to develop the ability yeah. to test people so it can identify here are people actually spreading this disease without other people's knowledge and let's isolate them. So that's what I would call selective isolation. But instead what governments have done, and I think from both parties, is universal isolation. So yep. they've treated us all as criminals. And it would be like saying, well, you know what? It's possible. We know that some people are going to be murderers. Right. And so therefore we're going to have indefinite curfew to prevent all these potential murders. You're not allowed to do that. Right. You need specific evidence that people are violating others' rights. And if the government had stuck to that, then it would have gotten much better at testing. It would have isolated a lot of individuals, you know, for the amount of time necessary, just a couple weeks. And it would have left us free to develop much better tests and treatments and to make rational decisions for our lives that weighed all the risks instead of imprisoning us and saying it's for our own good. You, you sound Presbyterian. <laughs> uh, well, I'm not. <laughs> it's honorary, honorary. Honorary Presbyterian. I, um, so do you think, I mean, now that all the data is coming in and demonstrating to us that it's, it's not sort of the, it's not the bubonic plague. It's not as bad as these, you know, these models initially um, demonstrate were, were, were claiming. Uh, do you think that, that, uh, that they'll learn some humility and maybe they won't say these crazy things anymore? Um, I hope, I think there's a chance to make it a learning opportunity in a couple of dimensions. I mean, I certainly hope to show people, Hey, there just as there was catastrophizing here used to justify restrictions of freedom and the restrictions of freedom were catastrophic. So that's what's being done with fossil fuels. But on, on the COVID issue in particular, I think it's a, at least my view is that the lockdowns were never an appropriate response. Yeah. When you have a lot of ignorance about yeah. something as a government, that doesn't mean that you have a right to take totalitarian control over people's lives. You can say, here's what we know, here's what we think, here's what we advise, but you can't tell tens of millions of people, really hundreds of millions of people, okay, I'm going to stop your life indefinitely because there's some threat of some size 
that I have no specific right. knowledge about. Right. Or somebody showed me a model and I got scared. That is not an American uh, approach, and we can see that it's it's ruinous. If you really have such good arguments, make the arguments and let us follow our own convictions. Mm. It's really eerie, this quote that he, he actually have a couple times in your book from Bill McKibben's book. It, it, he says, until such a time as homo sapiens should decide to rejoin nature, some of us can only hope for the right virus to come along. Oh, Ooh, that's I, a little, <laughs> a little prophetic yeah, there. So that's, that's not from um, Bill McKibben, although I do not have a high regard for him as, as a human being. That's not his quote. He's usually, I think he does really believe that, but that's okay. not, it's a quote from somebody reviewing his book. But Got that it. is, you'll hear that sentiment a lot, and particularly because we're recording on Earth Day. There's this <laughs> idea that, well, the Earth needs less of us. And, and one of the themes in my book is that it's when we're talking about right and wrong, we need to be really clear on what's our standard of measuring or evaluating right and wrong. Yes. And my standard is what I call human flourishing. So I regard the earth as a better place if it's a better place for human beings to live. And if, if you measure earth by that standard, earth has gotten a lot better over the last 200 years. It's a yeah. much more nourishing place, a much safer place, a much more opportunity-filled place than it was 200 years ago or 100 years ago or even 50 years ago. But if you measure the earth by how little human impact has been made, then you think of the earth as terrible. But that's really an anti-human standard. You're saying, I'm evaluating earth and our environment by how little human impact is, right. and the less impact, the better. I think that's an anti-human thing because human beings survive by impacting the earth. Mm. The moral case for fossil fuels. Alex Epstein, thank you so much for joining us, man. I, I hope your book does well, too. It's, it's a new, there's a new edition coming out, right? Uh, yeah, still finishing it up. So I hope that uh, people still get the old one and and uh, get the new one. Yeah, but in 2021, there will be a new moral case Woo! for yeah. fossil fuels. Alex, thank you for coming on Cross Politic. If you're single, get married. If you're married, have kids. And if you have kids, go baptize them That's until right. tomorrow. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go fight, laugh, and feast. This is Cross Politic. <laughs>